0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing times, the changing world, and the things we can do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's always during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Wednesday, May 20th, two thousand and nine and this is episode 203 of the survival podcast that's right 203 episodes and it couldn't have happened without you the audience i appreciate every one of you i say it often probably not often enough but any one of you who takes your time to listen to my show and especially those of you who have shared it with other people and brought us up to over 6,000 listeners in less than a year's time thank you from the bottom of my heart also i want to remind you i always we start this show out with the words "one man's view." That's another way of saying one man's opinion. As always, you are free—dare I say—encouraged to disagree with me. Just understand that if you make available to yourself uh, any of the ways there are to disagree with me by email, by blog, uh, by forum, I may disagree with you back. It doesn't mean I don't value your opinion. And I'm my biggest challenge to people when it comes to things that people debate: know what you believe, but also know why you believe it. As long as two people knew that, do that. I'm sorry. Uh, um, then we're going to sure, gonna have progress. It's when people believe something but they have no idea why they believe it. They believe it blindly. They believe it because somebody told them. They believe it because the TV told them that we get into uh, stagnation. That's not what today's show is about, though. We're going to continue uh, our series on permaculture today. Today I'm going to go over the 12 design principles of permaculture with you. Before I do that, though, I want to knock out the uh, typical house cleaning of the day. Um, number one, check out our sponsors. They're on the uh, right-hand margin of the SurvivalPodcast dot com. Today's sponsor is uh, Ready Made Resources. They have a lot of really cool stuff, and uh, one of the coolest things I've seen there is their uh, their solar powered fire starter. It's really awesome. Uh, I need to get off my butt and go ahead and order one of those. Uh, do a review for you. Uh, on that note, uh, if you think you get more than twenty five cents in value out of every episode of the Survival Podcast. Consider joining the Supporting Members Brigade for $5 a month or $50 a year, your choice. And you can buy ch- pay by check, U.S. Mail. There's a form as well uh, that you can print out, fill out, and send in, and we'll take care of setting you up manually because a lot of people asked for that. Um, you know, And you'll get exclusive content available only to members, such as we just did a video this weekend while we were up in Arkansas. It was on a real simple guerrilla permaculture technique uh, using legumes and uh, rocks and available local mold- and everything we used was right there on site and basically what we did is put something in place to help improve the soil and improve the growth of an old hickory that's currently producing mast. and see if we can get it to produce more mast, get it to canopy out better and things like that. So we're using what's there, using what's available. It's about a two and a half minute video. I think you'll enjoy it if you are a member, supporting group brigade member check it out. Uh, last but not least, let me remind you again, the Region 5 bug out, camp out get together got cancelled due to a variety of reasons. Uh, I do want to try to start putting regional events together on a smaller, uh, more uh, nimble uh, method uh, that maybe will start to form a community and get people working with each other and more teamwork. Uh, Sister Wolf on the forum is talking to Tim Suggs, and they're talking about putting together like a really big national event a year or two out, and uh, modeling a little bit after Wilderness Way. So we'll see what they do with that. I'll support them in any way again if they decide to go forward with it. All all right, so that knocks out house cleaning. Let's uh, let's go to uh, the, the kind of the, uh, the the meat of the show today, the permaculture design principles. And I was going to do something else today. I was going to talk, you know, uh, probably about the economy, because I haven't done that for a while. I was going to talk about two things that are going on today. And I just decided this was more important. The things I was going to talk about is the nonsense with the credit card regulations and how it's going to be absolutely pointless, and uh, the nonsense with General Motors and how the, the loan, the $15 billion that we were going to get back, uh, we're not gonna get any of it back. The federal government's gonna own GM, and the UAW's gonna own the other part of GM, and the shareholders are gonna get 1%. And, uh, what the idiots are saying is only the federal government's willing to come in and, and actually do this job. Well, if the shareholders are only getting 1%, and UAW's getting 40, which they don't deserve. The government's getting around 60, which it just doesn't reserve, deserve. Somewhere in the neighborhood, it's south of 40 for UAW, I think it's more like 30, because I think the, uh, the, the bondholders are getting a little piece as well. But, uh, you know, if you were willing to let the company be sold out, sell its assets out and return, you know, 1% to shareholders, which is what's happening anyway, I bet you somebody would have came in there and done that from the private sector and done it right. But, oh, well, you know, the thing is we can beat our head uh, about these issues, but they're really not going anywhere. All that would have been is, hey, I told you so, so I'll say there right now. When we bailed out the automakers, I told you all we were doing is forestalling bankruptcy and the government was going to end up owning them anyway, so here you go, so let's get into something a little bit more productive, let's talk about the design elements of permaculture, and let me start out with kind of what inspired me to go ahead and do this show today, I was on the forum really late last night, because I was working to get that video up, and some updates done on the site, and uh, an article out to Lou Rockwell, that should be syndicated soon as well, and um, I was in the forum and I saw this post and it was basically I'm really getting tired of these permaculture people and I thought well that's interesting so I checked it out. Basically the initial post was saying that you know I've started to get involved with some permaculture types in my area to learn more about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and I'm finding out that they're all far out fringe left wing liberal nuts, you know Michelle Obama worshippers and uh, global warming is going to kill us all in the whole nine yards and uh, by the end of the thread, the original posters actually come around to, you know, maybe I need to be talking to these people a little bit more. And I guess my point here is right now, that's what you should expect to find mostly in the permaculture world. Uh, very high concentration of vegetarians and actually true vegans. Uh, most of them are quite left-wing with their politics. But you know what? They're doing something good. They're doing something valuable. And That's an opportunity for the survival community, the self-sufficiency community, the homestead community. There's a lot we can learn from those people, and there's a lot those people can learn from us. And uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the design principles and explain some of these concepts that are kind of very fairy in a much more practical, uh, business-like, or even tactical manner for you. And that maybe will make them more concrete and give you a better understanding of when you're designing a permaculture system, why these things are important, and why they were put in place by the founders of the system. And there's there's really multiple founders of permaculture. And uh, on the other hand, it'll also maybe give you a way that you can bridge your dialogue with these people that uh, by and large are very left. And I know some very left people listen to this show, so don't be offended by that. What I'm saying is that we need to be reaching out to each other. And here's my advice for you. This is how you convert a complete left-wing whack job to a liberty-loving libertarian. Not a conservative Republican. You ain't gonna pull that one off. And, and you're, you know, if you're a conservative Republican, I'd like to see you move it toward libertarian too. Honestly, um, the way you do that is you start with the Second Amendment. And you don't debate it. Uh, form relationships with these people. Offer to take one of them skeet shooting. Just tell them, hey, give it a shot. Just a shotgun shooting clay birds. Nothing violent about it. Come on out. Get one or two of them to go with you. Put a shotgun in their hands. Teach them to break some clay. Um, the human animal will take over from there. So that's my little tip of the day for converting people uh, from left-wing extremism to uh, liberty-loving American without you know debating the things that we agree on. And these 12 principles are going to be things that I think we all agree on. So what are the 12 principles of permaculture? Uh, principle number one is observe and interact. And I guess another way to look at this being being part of nature or, or the, the etherical way of being one with nature. Let me just put it to you in a really brass tacks way, a Jack Spearco way, though. My version of uh, observe and interact, be a part of things. In other words, when you're building agricultural systems and and gardens and and design and anything that goes on your property from zone zero which is the inside of your house to zone one which is the garden you maintain well to zone five which is a little area that you leave just go wild. If you are involved with any of those, be a part of them. Don't don't just hire somebody to cut your grass. Don't trim your bushes all square. Right, I mean, when you think about modern American, uh, you know, lawns and, and and hedge trimmings and trees are all in these very formal methodologies. And if you were observing what was going on, odds are they would never end up that way. And what I mean by that is a lot of people go in, take a bush, and they go, oh, "Bush is untidy. It's all it's all out of shape. It's all out of whack." And then they go in there and they prune it and they trim it and they make it look like something it was never designed to look like. But it's because they've never been a part of anything with that bush. They haven't observed and interacted with it. And what I mean by that is if you went in there and observed and interacted with it, you'd probably see little creatures living within the bush. You might see birds taking pieces of it away to use it for nest building. You'd see the pieces of it that were falling to the ground and becoming part of the soil and improving your soil so you don't have to use fertilizer. That doesn't mean you wouldn't trim the bush, but maybe you would trim it a little less. And when you trimmed it, Instead of taking the uh, we the, the debris, tying it up in a bundle and putting it out for the trash man to take away, you just cut it and throw it on the ground under the bush. And, yeah, it's kind of big and bulky, and it'll look unattractive for a day or two. But quickly, very quickly, the leaves will start to, to dry up, the twigs will start to dry up, and it will begin to break down and it'll look like what it really is, which is mulch. But that won't happen if you're not observing and interacting. When it comes to things like pests and we all we do is we see, okay, well there is a, a leaf that's been completely chewed to nothing. That almost never happens overnight. If you're observing and interacting on a daily basis with the stuff that's around you that you're growing, you'll see the problems begin to pop up before they require drastic action. And it's a lot easier to do things like companion planting or simple repellents or encouraging beneficials if you're observing and interacting daily. That's why it's such an important principle. But again, making it a brass tacks concrete thought just be a part of the things that are going on around you on any property that you're managing. But principle number two is catch-and-store energy. And, of course, the uh, the permaculturist will always bring, uh, somehow, global warming will always, 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 end up in this discussion, and we're the whole planet is going to break down, and we're all going to die, and the oceans are going to rise, in New York City, God, you know, and I understand when people get tired of hearing that, because God knows I'm tired of hearing it. But let me make this principle, catch and store energy, brass tacks reality for you from a survivalist standpoint. Be an ant. It's that simple, be an ant, not a grasshopper, right? And what I mean by that is, if you think about this, there's long-term and short-term catch, store, and use methodologies. A short-term would be you build a thermal wall in your home that has a, a, an air chamber in it that's designed to take the solar energy from the day and catch that heat all day long. And then after the sun goes down, to release that heat into the home. Right, and it will only last so long, and eventually it will run out. You might have to use other heating methods. But it will continue to sustain the warmth of the home after the sun, which is warming the entire home during the winter, goes down. So you've caught the energy, you've stored it relatively short term, and you've used it. That's still ant philosophy. That's I went out and picked some food today. And since I didn't want to go back out to pick more food for dinner, when I ate lunch, I also brought in extra food, saved it for dinner, ate it that night. Right? Short-term ant philosophy. Long-term ant philosophy would be, okay, I'm also going to set up rain catch systems around my home. The water, when it rains, is everywhere. We have a surplus. Don't need the water. It's pouring outside. No need whatsoever of water while it's raining. But one or two days after it rains and the sun's out, it's 95 degrees in the summertime, and everything's fairly dried up, even with good mulch. You're starting to get to a point where at least some areas need some water. Put in a rain catch system, and you start to catch that rainwater. And with a large enough system, you might be able to sustain your ecosystem for three, four, five, six months, as long as typical winter or longer even though it may not be winter when you're using it. Long-term storage of energy and philosophy as well. So this is a very... Very survivalist philosophy, when it comes down to solar panels. While the sun's out, you're catching the rays of the sun. You're using some of the power immediately. But what you're doing mostly is you're building up storage in a battery bank to use later. You're taking the energy while it's in surplus, storing it for the future. Catch and store energy, brass tacks, be an ant. Next one is obtaining yield. And this is where the permaculture starts to show us they're not abundant. They're not all left wing in everything that they're thinking. It's not all, you know, man is a parasite upon the planet uh, terminology and thought. And that's how some of this stuff that's way out there in environmentalism, it's almost like you people want people to, you, you want everybody to go away but you. You want to exterminate humans from the planet is sometimes how you feel with this. Permaculture's not like that. They're saying that if you're going to make a system sustainable and usable, you have to be able to produce something with it so that the humans interacting with it and the humans around it will value it. Once they value it, they'll preserve it. This is seen in hunting. You take an animal that people want to protect because they think that it's cute like a deer and and yeah they want to protect it they don't want you to shoot it but there's no money uh, made available for management you turn it into a game animal and billions of dollars flow from the the pockets of the hunter who wants to harvest the resource and even though we're hunting the deer and utilizing the deer and obtaining a yield from the deer continuously we keep having rising populations of deer in the united states all the way back to the 30s when the population got to its lowest. And from that moment forward, we've seen successful population growth in a controlled and healthy way in most of the country where white-tailed deer live. Why? Because there's a value to it because the people that obtain the yield are willing to invest in it to preserve it. Another way of looking at this brass tax business model, uh, my version of it, get an ROI, get a return of investment, make sure that when you're putting together your permaculture systems, your agriculture systems around your house, they are going to produce something for you that is useful. And hopefully they'll produce a surplus. And either that surplus can be part of a business model where you sell it, and if it's a surplus that's too small for that or you just don't want the hassle, you don't need the money, what have you, take it to the local food banks and give it away. Make it available to people that don't have food. Use the ROI for yourself and for others. Use it to create storage as well so that you have long-term storage capabilities. That way, not only you will value it, but the community around you will value it as well. The Durvances are a perfect example of just that. They actually sustain their entire family. These guys out in California, if you haven't seen them, I'll post a link to one of their videos on YouTube today. 6,000 pounds of food on a tenth of an acre. They sell the food to local uh, to local restaurants. They're valued in their community because they provide something that those restaurants can't get anywhere else, especially with the drought in the, uh, the in the San Joaquin Valley now. So it's it's absolutely critical that you're getting a return of investment because that's the only way the system will actually be sustainable. Another one is uh, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. And what the permaculturist is telling us there when they say part of what you need to be doing is make sure that you you, you regulate yourself some. In other words, don't try to squeeze production for yourself out of every inch of the land i've seen people post in the forum hey what can i plant from a tree or a bush that'll produce nitrogen in the soil but it's also good for me to eat one answer is from what i gave you yesterday sea buckthorn or sea berry however you want to call it it's an edible berry makes an orange juice substitute if you sweeten it and take the juice out of it It has lots of vitamin c it's a great thing but Do you have to get a direct return to yourself from everything that you put out there that's supposed to produce nitrogen? Is it good for all your nitrogen-producing plants to be one variety just because you have to have a personal return? Or do you maybe go in and put some pea bushes in? And the pea bushes aren't really any good for you, but they're good for the wildlife, and they put a lot of nitrogen in the soil. You let the pea bush grow to a certain height. You chop the top off. You drop it. It produces mulch. When you chop it, the root systems that are holding the nitrogen have to shrink because they have less canopy to work with. When they drop the nitrogen in the soil, it becomes available to the other plants. You take the drop part, you lay it on the on the floor, on the ground. It begins to break down and improve the soil as well as a mulch component, as a composting component. And it regrows and does the whole thing again, over and over and over again. Do you get a direct return? No. But because you're applying self-regulation here and you're saying, I don't have to have every inch and every plant directly produced for me, because even on a small lot, if I do it right, long term I can produce more than I can ever use, you're actually contributing better to the ecosystem. Another way to look at self-regulation is if you plant a bunch of apple trees and you have apples everywhere and you have deer coming in and eating some of your apples, it's not necessary to prevent the deer from eating some of the apples. Now, you may have deer issues. You may have to control them some, but it might make a hell of a lot of sense to just accept the fact you're going to have some loss or to do things like taking all the apples that are bad apples, bruised, uh, that have been damaged by insects or anything like that, picking them, put them in a pile, make them easier for the deer to access in a place they'll feel safer. They won't need to come out and eat your apples off your trees because they'll have apples available to them in a place where they feel more secure. And you get what you want and the deer get what you want. Now you're applying self-regulation. You're not trying to squeeze every maximum piece out of the system where eventually you tax it beyond its capacity. Brass tax, way to look at this, don't kill the freaking golden goose guys. Right? You know, the old story about the guy with the golden goose. And the goose gave him a golden egg every day. And every day you could take that golden egg and go out and use it as currency. But he decided he wanted all the eggs at once, so he kills the goose and cuts it open. There's no eggs in there. The, the goose is producing the egg. And that's what your land is doing. It's producing. So if you try to push it beyond its capacity, it will begin to break down and fail. That's that's as simple as I can make that principle for you. The next one is uh, use and value resources and services. In other words, look out at what's available to you and don't be afraid to utilize nature. Don't be afraid to harness nature. Don't be afraid to go out and look and go, there's a surplus that I can harvest and use elsewhere. Uh, My brass tacks way about this is be efficient to be independent. In other words, if if we run to Home Depot every time we need something, then what are we going to do as survivalists if we have a breakdown of the U.S. infrastructure for one reason or another, and that option isn't there anymore? Now I love Home Depot and Lowe's. I, I take a lot of my lunch times and I go to one or the other and just walk around and look and use it for creativity and spurring. But it doesn't mean that every time something's necessary, I go to Home Depot and Lowe's. The video that you just uh, that I just put in the Member Support Brigade. Up in Arkansas, way out in the sticks, rocks everywhere, leaves everywhere, forest soil everywhere. You know, you look at that and you go, okay, well, obviously you can use what's available there because you have so much abundance. Well, I just did the same project with more intensive management using scarlet runner beans under my peach tree in my backyard. One of the other trees in my backyard is a golden rain tree. Instead of going off to Home Depot and buying mulch or even using the bag of cypress mulch uh, that was sitting up by my my shed I went under the golden rain tree where I've mowed a hundred thousand times probably chopping up its leaves because no grass will grow under it, it's too shaded and I took a rake and I raked up the leaves from that golden rain tree and I went over and I coated the ground around my peach tree before I put the scarlet runner beans in then I did my pruning of the peach tree and threw the peach tree branches straight on the ground on top of the leaves and they're beginning to break down now eventually those scarlet, so it's the same project without a rock ring because a rock ring's less important there I didn't need to go as deep with the mulching and things like that because I'm actually there and I'll be able to water it on a daily basis so either way we're taking the resources that are there we're harvesting and we're using them and neither one of them require a trip to the store and both of them make more efficient use of what's available but neither method was harmful in any way and even the bean seeds that we used, in an evolved system, there should be plenty of beans to harvest for future seed replanting. So that is just, you know, a perfect example, real world, something we just did that meets this principle. And i got to tell you, permaculture is a full, indoctrinated process. It's actually very new to me. I've done parts of it here and there. I didn't even know that principle, but we did that. It's just the logical way to act, if you really think about it, from a, you know a standpoint of What can I do to better utilize what I have? I actually think the next principle is kind of redundant and can be explained the same way. But I guess it needs to be said because we are such wasteful people, and uh, that is produce no waste. My view of that is, you know, make use of everything that's useful. Before you discard something, make sure there's not something that can be done with it. Value what you have. These are are fundamental principles of survivalism. You don't throw away something because it's broken without trying to fix it first. Right? I mean, that makes sense to our community. That's what we do. If a gun is misfiring, don't throw it away and go buy a new gun. Figure out why it's misfiring. We fix it. We repair it. If a pump is not working... Before we, you know, give up on the pump and go out and spend a several hundred dollars on a new pump, we see can it be repaired, can it be fixed, is it just a part? Even if it can't be fixed, by trying to fix it, I'll figure out how it works. Maybe I can find another method in the future when I don't have the option to buy a pump. So I'm going to make an attempt to salvage what I have before I discard it. Right? From a permaculture standpoint, that's everything from making sure that the garbage that you're producing inside of your home, anything that's useful is retained and used in the landscape. Anything that's organic is sent back to the earth to break down. Wastewater. You know, this is something I'm not doing now. I'm not going to do this in Arlington. I just, you know, my time frame here is too short. But eventually, in in, in, um, in in Arkansas, what I want to do is take all the water that goes down the drains of my sink, all the water that goes down the drains of my shower, and stop sending that stuff back to the uh, the septic system where the sewage goes, and start sending it into a, a system that actually irrigates crops that can handle that type of water runoff. Now I. got I got to be honest with you folks. I'm never going to set up a system where uh, the human waste is used in, in the system. I'm just not going to do it. Um, I'm going to stick to a you know a septic system that breaks it down underground. And that's a personal choice. And that's something else I want to bring up here. You don't have to become super green, eco, total freak to be a permaculturist. You can choose how much of these things that you adapt into your life. And trust me, if, if, if half the people adopted 10% of these principles, the world would be a hell of a lot better place and people would be a hell of a lot more self-sufficient. The next one, the seventh principle is design patterns and details. In other words, step Back from what you're doing, and understand that there's a way that nature works, and that's really the layering system at work. Your canopy, you know, your 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 subcanopy, your your herbaceous, all the layers that we went through in a, in a previous episode, and, and nature works that way. And creating, you know, irrigation swales in a place where the water is in abundance is where the, your biggest growth will be. And by patterning things after nature, you'll have a lot more success in getting what you want out of the land. Sure. My uh, my brass tacks view of this, though, is be an artist and step back. And what I mean by that is if you look at a painting by somebody like da Vinci, right, or a drawing by da Vinci or any of the great artists, a Van Gogh, it doesn't matter, beautiful works of art is considered master's work by the most knowledgeable people in art. If you stand an inch away from the canvas and look at that painting, it doesn't look beautiful. You don't see the patterns. You see the texture in, in the brush stroke. It has its own type of beauty, but it's not the whole. It's not the reality. and You don't understand the work when you're looking at a half square inch of the canvas. With your eyes focused in on it, it actually doesn't look like much of anything as far as an image or a picture. And it certainly doesn't look like a masterful work. But step back and take the thing in in its entirety and you see the beauty and the vision of the artist that created it. So my statement there with permaculture is you have to step back from your system. Don't just, you know, even though you get intensive and you're in your zone one area where you're, you're looking at the individual plant, evaluating its health, what other companion plants can I build, bring in, what else can I plant here, there's an empty space, what do I fill it with to prevent weeds and put something useful in there, how do I create a pond here, all these things that you look at individually are important, But you also have to step back at the beginning of the process, during the process, and even toward the end of the the eventual fulfillment of the process. You have to constantly step back and view the entire thing as a holistic system and see it for what it is in its entirety. And what you'll realize is that when you start developing the land and making it produce for you, what you're doing is you're not really being a gardener. You're becoming an artist. You're actually creating something that is special and productive and valued that other people will come in even after you're gone if you do it right and see so much value in it that it's often preserved. And there are food forests in the world that are over 2,000 years old. And people, for generation after generation after generation, do not preserve something unless it's beautiful, unless it's valued, unless it's productive. And the only person that can create that is an artist. So if you've always wanted to be able to draw or paint or sculpt, and you just don't have that artistic ability in you, this may be the outlet for your artistic nature. And at the same time you're creating something beautiful, you're creating something productive. So be an artist and step back from your creation once in a while and see it in its entirety. The next one is integrate rather than segregate. In other words, don't practice monoculture. I mean, that's as simple as, as, as that really is. What, what you know, modern agriculture is all about is an entire field full of nothing but corn so we can get maximum corn yield per acre because the corn's not competing with anything else. And then the field over across the street is full of soybeans so we can get maximum soybean per acre. And that's segregating plants. We're integrating plants is saying, hey, you know what? If we planted the beans and the corn in the same place, there's a holistic relationship between the two of them. We'll get less of a yield of each, but we'll be kinder to the land overall. And we won't rape the land to a point of unproductivity. We won't kill the golden goose. So we're starting to see how these principles interact. Um, You know... What I actually say that is, understand the power of teams. You know, that's a corporate terminology, that's a sports terminology, that's a military terminology. Two are more powerful together than they are as two people working independently. A squad of well-trained men can do things that those five men independently couldn't pull off if they were all working for the same goal, but not together and in conjunction with each other. So... Start looking for the teamworks that are available on your land and your plantings. What plants work together. That's basic companion planting. But beyond that, how does the plant contribute to itself? When you take a tree and you chop its canopy off, and you drop it to the ground around itself, it's, mul- it's providing for itself. And it's its two systems working, its root system and its branching and leafing system, working to support each other. So start to see the relationships from a very small level, one plant supporting itself, to the entire holistic ecosystem when you take that artistic step backward and look at the whole system working together. Again, it's pretty simple. Uh, Make sure that you're putting things together in ways that are symbiotic rather than trying to segregate them off into a monoculture model. The next one is use, permaculture uh, principle nine, use small and slow solutions. And, And my way of looking at that, is focus on what you can do first. Uh, You know, that's why I'm getting bored with some of the politics that are out there. I I, I look at it and I say, you know, I'm all for calling my congressman when I'm really pissed off about something and telling him I'm going to vote against him if he doesn't do it, but in reality, we have a very limited ability to influence things except around the elections, and even a lot of those things, hey, I'm just voting for a different clown. That's all I'm doing. I'm just putting a different self-serving jackass in the office to serve himself instead of serving his people because the system is so damn corrupt at this point. But what I can change, what I can influence is myself. And I can influence how I react to what they do. I can influence how I set up my life to be independent of their systems that I consider a form of slavery. I control me. So... You take that principle and you apply it everywhere, including to agriculture and permaculture. Instead of worrying that somebody else is doing more uh, or that you're not getting as much production as you want this year, that planting those trees today won't result in any harvest for four or five years, understand the old adage of slow and steady wins the race. Focus on what you can do now. Take the meaningful actions you can have now and be patient as you wait for the result. If you need to see something quickly, throw some radish seeds in the ground. 28 days later, you'll have radishes. But if you want a big, beautiful, majestic chestnut tree, it's going to take a decade. But that's okay. But you can plant it now. Now. You can put the system of support in place for it now. If you have five acres and you're gifted with five or ten or twenty acres, you're not going to plant the entire thing into the way that you want it this year, probably this five years. It's going to take you a decade to completely do everything that you want to do, and then you'll still be finding new things that you can do as the systems begin to mature and you start to use edges and, and margin land. And it's okay. Take your time. You know, what did your dad tell you when you are working on projects? Take your time. Do it right. Do it right the first time. Make every action you take count. In other words, as I said, very simply, focus on what you can do personally first. The next one is use and value diversity. And again, I see some redundancy in this. When you say that, it's integrate rather than segregate, use and value diversity. I see those as being very similar principles. But when I look at the practical application of them that the permaculturist means, and I translate that into corporate speak, I would say practice risk reduction. So it's not just diversity of of, species, but diversity of variety. So many people in agriculture are settling on one or two varieties of highly productive corn because they get the highest yield out of it. But what happens when something devastates that particular variety this year? So... In a permaculture society where everybody's using two or three varieties, but there's tremendous diversity in those varieties, and they're being genetically adapted through successive plantings to be more adapted to their individual climates, and we end up going back to a state where there were thousands and thousands of varieties of just corn, we have reduced risk. Same thing with potatoes. Uh, In the Andean regions where the potatoes come from in South America, there's just thousands of native varieties of potatoes many of those varieties of potatoes were taken over to europe in ireland and only one potato ended up being highly prized in ireland it was called the lumper and when the potato blight hit there were many varieties that were resistant to it but none of them were there And, and and you know thousands and thousands of people starved during the potato famine in ireland it didn't have to happen it was losing that variety that diversity that caused that to happen. And as we push the planet closer and closer to its its maximum capacity of production under the current system, if we have a massive failure of a particular variety of anything, it could be catastrophic. So we need to begin to practice risk reduction by bringing a lot of this diversity that's been lost back to life and getting it back into heavy production uh, on an individual level by focusing on what we can do first. See how these all play? together the next one is use edges and value the marginal and uh, I guess the way I would say that is seek alliances not conflicts in other words, the same thing I started this about is, yeah, there's some people who are pretty freaking far left wing in the permaculture community, but what's their real goal? Their real goal is to con- con- you know convert land that's unproductive into productive land that will provide self-sufficient lifestyles. Now, how much more of an alliance could there be than that for the survivalists, even if we differ vastly on so many other things? Liberty, the Second Amendment, socialism. I understand. I don't buy into any of the left-wing you know, versions of these things. But this we agree on, so we work together. In an actual practical landscape application, it is the edges of the forest where the most life is, where the bushes, the shrubs, and the herbaceous layer canopy down and get an interaction from the whole. When you go fishing, you don't go out in the middle of a lake, dead center, drop your line in an 80 feet of water and wait for a bite. There's very little out there unless there's some sort of under-lake under structure creating an edge, right? It creates an edge between where the, the, the lake bottom is flat and where it rises up. Most of what people do when they fish, they fish the edges of the lake. So a round lake is far less useful to life than one with a lot of arms and tributaries and peninsulas and zigzags and jags and islands. The more things you do to create edges in a pond or a lake, the more valuable and productive it is. Same thing with landscape. The more places that you have large trees and then they break down to, to sub you know your 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 secondary trees your understory growth and then that breaks down into shrubs and then that breaks down into herbaceous and ground cover and, and, and ground cover and climbers the more places that occurs With winding and twisting and bending throughout a property, the more productive and more sustainable the property becomes. Again, use edges and value the marginal. And in a practical, you know, tactical aspect, seek alliances instead of conflicts. Pretty simple. The last one is use creativity and respond to change. Say that one again. Use creativity and respond to change. If you're a military person, you know what I'm going to say. Improvise, adapt, and overcome. A very tactical way to look at things. They tell you in the army, your mission is to do this, this, and this, and get all those objectives accomplished. It's not a task. It's not a job. Failure is not an option. It's a mission, and get it done. Here's your plan of attack. No plan of attack will survive conf- you know confrontation with an enemy. So when the plan breaks down, improvise, adapt, and overcome, and get back on plan as quickly as you can. But one way or another, you as individual soldier have to make a determination of how to improvise and adapt and overcome. That's the same thing with permaculture. You'll go put something in place. You'll be sure it's gonna work. The book says it's gonna work. Guy across the street says he did it and it worked. Doesn't work for you. Because it, maybe your soil's not the same. There's a pest on your property that wasn't wherever the guy that wrote the book is from. The climate that you thought was similar is really not. Temperatures are similar but the rainfall levels are different. He had better I mean there so many reasons that what looks like it's going to work perfectly doesn't work. But by starting with going back into a circle with these principles. So the first principle, be a part of the system. In other words, observe and interact. You observe and you interact the failure. And then you determine where the deficiency is. You adapt to the deficiency by compensating for it. You take a new direction and you continue to improve the productivity, the reliability, and the sustainability of the system. And we've come from principle one through 12, and we're right back into principle one. It is truly a circle. Because it's effective, it's redundant, and it works. So when you see some of these permaculture types out there, and they they, they start this this way out socialistic view of the world, understand something important. The reason that they think socialism works is because when it's ten people observing and interacting with each other, principle one, and going, hey, get off your butt and work with the rest of us or get out of here, socialism is a natural for mankind when a government tries to apply it into a mass it doesn't work people that believe in socialistic tendencies do so because they observe and interact with it on a small scale and it's natural for them to believe that it'll scale up well the reality is if we let people sort themselves out there's no place or room for government to come do it for us and I will make this political here at the end because it's exactly like permaculture Right? And you don't have to take this political lesson if you don't want to, but here's the reality. If we affect enough real change, not government-mandated, sponsored, oversaw, and enforced change, but real change in individuals where individuals develop these self-sufficiencies. It's just like a permaculture system, where you plant so much that's useful, functional, and sustainable, that a weed has nowhere to go. The government and the permaculture system of our country is the weed. Every government program is a weed. And when you take away dependence on it... There's no place left for that weed, and it does what all weeds do when you take away what sustains them. It withers, it dies, and it's overcome by something useful. It's a new way to look at permaculture, but I think if you understand that, maybe you'll be able to interact more with the people in these communities that are way far away from you politically speaking and understand if they become self-sufficient enough, they're going to create liberty whether they think that's what they're doing or not. And it's not... you know light of hand. It's really what their goal is anyway. The reason they buy into these socialist tendencies is they don't have enough faith in society to do it for themselves. Well, They are the solution to that, not government. But the way to to do that is to seek the alliance instead of the conflict. To go in and help them improve what they're doing. Show them, demonstrate to them that people that are a thousand miles away from them politically are already doing the exact same things that they are, working to the same end and the same goal. And we'll start to have a lot more alliances out there. It's a long road. It won't happen overnight. And some of these people literally will hate you for who you are. But don't hate them back. That's just not the way that you achieve anything. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.